Okay, Steve's question was in this passage number six at the very end. Talks about who Bali becomes independent of others with regard to the teacher's message, which means he's had an experience of the deathless. So he knows, okay, I doesn't have. It's no longer a report from somebody else. It's a direct experience. He saw that it was because of his actions that he was able to get there. He also saw that. Basically, okay, the Buddha knows what he's talking, but he also knows that it wasn't simply because he was following certain rules. There had to be some insight, some understanding about the processes of the mind. And this is what, you know, they say that at stream entry you cut three fetters. One is uncertainty. In other words, you're no longer uncertainty about you know, the fact that the Buddha really was awakened. And then secondly, you cut... Um, identity view. In other words, you no longer identify yourself around the five aggregates. You don't say, I am my body, or I have a body, or I am in my body, or my body is in me. And the same with all the other five aggregates. So you're not, you, because in that moment of the experience of the deathless, the aggregates are not there. You know, there's still this awareness of this other dimension that lies outside of space and time. So there's no need to identify yourself around those five aggregates. And then finally, there is no attachment to precepts and practices or habits and practices, which means that you don't believe, well, simply by obeying certain rules, I am going to gain awakening. There has to be some insight, some independent insight on your own part. So that's what it means, that you become independent of others. You've seen this for yourself, now you know what the path is, you know what the goal is. Now it's a question of completing the path. Any other questions on that passage 6 before we go on to passage 7? Yes. Well, he says... No, it's extreme happiness. And the Buddha says, if you think that it's going to be boring or dull, that's wrong view. No, part of it is that you know, we're used to, our happiness is based on feeding, i.e. clinging. And the Buddha's saying, okay, you're not going to be feeding anymore. He's oh my God, to be starved. He says, no, you're going to, there will be no need to feed. Now that's hard for our minds to get around because our minds are so tuned into, you know, how am I going to feed off my next pleasure? How am I going to feed off my next whatever activity? So it may sound sort of scary. This is one of the reasons why your doubts about it are not going to be allayed until you've been there and said, well, this really is really good. Oh yeah, this, it's not a blank. It's not a, it's not a nothingness. Um, it's the end of karma. But the Buddha says it's, he calls it consciousness without surface. The analogy being that when you feed on something, you're, you're, you're aware of something, our ordinary consciousness always has an object and it's kind of bouncing off the object, whereas this is consciousness without an object. Um, the analogy the Buddha gives is of a light beam. There's a, he, he's talking to a group of monks one time, he says, suppose there's a house, has a window on the east side and a wall on the west side, and when the sun rises and the sunbeam goes to the eastern window, where does it land? It lands on the western wall. Suppose there's no western wall. Where does it land? It lands on the ground. Suppose there's no ground. And back in those days they believed there was water under the ground. So it lands on the water. What if there's no water? Then it doesn't land. And it's okay. The, the light beam that doesn't land, that's the analogy for, 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 the, for the deathless, yeah. Any other questions? Well, there is an experience of pure consciousness where it's consciousness is conscious of consciousness. In other words, it has an object. This is a different kind of thing. And the Buddha actually mentions this in one of the texts. He says there's a, there's a non-duality of consciousness, but that is still inconstant.
and the path there is the karma that leads to the end of karma. The Buddha talks about four kinds of karma. He says there's bright, dark, both bright and dark, and then there's neither bright nor dark. And bright, of course, is at least to a good rebirth, dark is at least to a bad rebirth. Mixed is what most of us have. But then there's the Eightfold Path, which leads to the end of karma. Because nirvana is something that doesn't have to be sustained. You don't have to do anything to keep it going. It's well, at that point you know that you have put down the burden, yeah. That the release is where you put down the burden. And then you realize, oh, the burden's gone. Okay, let's move on to section seven, passage seven. Okay, this is the one that introduces the practice starting with admirable friendship. Now the question is, why would you want to go see an admirable friend? It's because you're suffering. You want to find somebody that you, would, you can trust to show you a way out of suffering. And the Buddha gives basically an outline of how this, the practice would develop based on that. You found a person of integrity, and in some of the subsequent passages we're going to be talking about how you recognize a person of integrity. From that person you hear the true Dharma. After you hear the true Dharma you develop a sense of conviction. And then, this is basically the second paragraph in passage 7. From conviction you then apply appropriate attention. Now the term appropriate attention here means basically seeing things in one of two frameworks. One is the question, what kind of action am I doing and what are the results of my actions? And if you find that something is a skillful action that gives good results, then it's something you want to develop. If you find that it's an unskillful action that gives bad results, then you want to abandon it. So every question comes back to, what am I doing in this situation that's either leading to happiness or leading to suffering? So that brings the question out, it's not so much you're suffering because of things outside, it's you're suffering because of your own actions. So you want to look at your actions and see where you can straighten them out. And then it goes on to another level, which as I mentioned before, this distinction between skillful action and unskillful action leads to the Four Noble Truths. You look more inside, over what mental actions are leading to stress in the mind. And when the Buddha uses the word stress, he uses it in two contexts. One is in the terms of the three perceptions, and the other is in the terms of the Four Noble Truths. In terms of the three perceptions, stress is basically anything that arises and passes away is going to be stressful. There's just a stress in the process of giving rise to something and making conditions for it to go and then seeing them fall away. And that's just built into conditions in general. And then in terms of the Four Noble Truths, there's the stress that comes from your own clinging and craving. And so it's the second one that actually weighs down the mind. If you don't cling to things that are changing, if you don't crave them, then their change is not going to make any effect on you. you know, suppose you hear about a landslide on Mars. No big deal. Nobody's harmed, nobody's hurt. But if you had a piece of real estate under that landslide, okay, then, then, then there'd be a big problem. I mean, how are you going to get there? How can you straighten this out? So it's the crank, and that's, that's, what, that's what is the suffering that weighs on the mind. And the Buddha says, if you can take care of that, then the changes in the world are not going to affect the mind. So the changes that you notice in the three perceptions would not have any effect on the mind at that point. So it's the, the real problem is, according to appropriate attention, is our own clinging and our own craving. And it's our own unskillful actions that lead to clinging and craving, so we have to develop the, sk the skills that would get an end, put an end to clinging and craving 
and abandon anything in the mind that would lead to further clinging and craving. This is what appropriate attention does. And attention for the Buddha is not so much what you're looking at, it's the questions you're paying attention to. What should I do? What sh what's, how should I analyze this particular issue? And then how should I act as a result? That's the difference between appropriate and inappropriate attention. The Buddha never talks about bare attention anywhere in the canon. It's either appropriate or inappropriate. Any questions on appropriate attention? Okay, then based on that, then, then you develop mindfulness and alertness. Now mindfulness, there's a Sutta Majjhima 117 where the Buddha talks about mindfulness being one of the factors that underlies every other factor of the path. He identifies three factors. There's right view, right effort, right mindfulness. Right view is basically what distinguishes what's right, say, right resolve as opposed to wrong resolve. Right mindfulness remembers, okay, wrong resolve is something that should be abandoned. Right resolve is something that should be developed. You keep that in mind. And then based on that, then right effort actually tries to give rise to the right resolve and then abandon wrong resolve. So here's again, mindfulness is acting as a faculty of your memory and it's reminding you of what needs to be done. Um, the, the Buddha gives a couple of analogies here. One is he says that mindfulness is like a goad. Do you know what a goad is? It's a long stick with a point on the end. And you use it, you know, if you're talking your water buffalo is plowing the field and the water buffalo is going up to the right, you stick it on the right. If it's going off to the left, you stick it on the left. In other words, reminding the buffalo, this is where I want you to go. So again, it's a reminding of what is the appropriate thing to be done. Another analogy the Buddha gives is of a gatekeeper at a, on a fortress that's on a frontier. Now the frontier fortress is in a position of danger because there may be people from the other side coming in. So the gatekeeper has to recognize, okay, who's a friend and who's a foe? Who do I let in? Who do I keep out? It's not, mindfulness is not just sitting there watching people coming and going. He's got to say, okay, enemies, stay out. And you have to recognize them. This is another one of the faculties of memory, excuse me, faculties of mindfulness, is that when a mind state comes up, you want to recognize it for what it is. For instance, a hindrance comes up, sensual desire. Usually our first thought is not, hmm, this is a hindrance. Right? It's, hmm, this is interesting, let's go. You know? And so the Buddha is saying, no, you've got to stop back and recognize this is going to be a hindrance. The same with ill will, sloth and torpor. And we can talk ourselves into thinking, you know, the person that I would really like to see suffer, this person really does see, deserves to suffer. Or when you're feeling sleepy, you say, ah, I really do need a rest. Or if you're worried about something, if I don't worry about this, something bad is going to happen, so I've got to worry. The mind is constantly siding with these hindrances. And the Buddha is saying, the first thing you've got to remember is, no, this is a hindrance. This is actually going in the way of my progress. Then once you recognize what it is, then the next question is, can you remember how to deal with it? How do you counteract sensual desire? How do you counteract ill will? How do you counteract sloth and torpor? And then similarly with good things that are coming in, you want to encourage them. So the duty of mindfulness as a gatekeeper is you recognize who's bad and then how to keep them out. You recognize who's good, how to bring them in. I was reading a book one time by one of the people who was promoting mindfulness as bare awareness. And he was saying, 
he's trying to explain this particular analogy, and he says, well, the simple fact that the gatekeeper is sitting there at the gate, that's enough to deter the enemy. <coughs> and it's kind of like a, a mannequin policeman. Scare, well, it's like a scarecrow. And it, scare, it scares some of the crows maybe one day, you know, the scarecrow. <laughs> Or I, I, the, the mannequin policeman. Do you have mannequin policemen up here in Washington? Yeah. No. We, we have sort of mannequin police cars sometimes mm -hmm. parked around. Parked around. Uh -huh. yeah. I mean, they don't even go to the trouble of putting a mannequin in? No. Uh -huh. <laughs> They're really cheap. <laughs> There's an intersection in, in Utah right at the corner. If you're going from Zion National Park to Bryce National Park, there's this been police car that's been parked there for several years. And it's got a mannequin. And they're assuming that you know, most people going from Zion to Bryce, this is their one time in their lifetime that they're going to go between Zion and Bryce, so that that's enough to you know, slow down the tourists. But the locals, no, this is a mannequin, so you just drive right past, you know. <laughs> and it's the same with, you know, if the gatekeeper was just sitting there watching, you know, mind states coming and going, maybe the first time around your unskillful mind states would say, okay, I can't come in. But then they realize that mindfulness is not going to do anything, so they just come in as any other way they want. So that's mindfulness, is you've got to know, you've got to recognize what's skillful and what's unskillful as it's actually happening, and then remember what to do with it. Now the alertness there is basically the quality of noticing what you're doing. It's not just a general awareness of the present moment, it's specifically, what am I doing, what are the results I'm getting? And this allows you to read your actions in the same way that the Buddha explained to Rahula. You know what you do, you see the results of your actions, and then you can make adjustments further on. Now based on mindfulness alertness, then the Buddha says the next quality is restraint of the senses. This is basically as you're going through the day, you notice when you're looking at something, when you're listening to something, you want to see it as part of a causal process. Not just, hmm, I like this or I don't like that. The question is, who is doing the looking? Is your greed doing the looking? Is your anger doing the looking? Or is your wisdom doing the looking? Yeah. So in other words, what is your motivation in looking for, at something? And then secondly, what are you, know, what are, what are you focusing on? Does the, th the things you focus on, are they aggravating your defilements or are they actually helping to put, put an end to it? Now you can look at something as beautiful and it can really get, get your greed or your lust going. Or you can look at something that's ugly and get your anger going, if you're focusing on certain details. If you focus on other details, however, you can see well, they, even the object that is beautiful has its bad side. Or even something that I don't like actually has its good side. So the question is, what details are you focusing on? And what impact is it having on the mind? So that's restraint of the senses. So if you see that you're looking at something because of your anger or because of your desire, as I said, you know, it's many times we're out there looking for trouble. One of the monks at the monastery used to volunteer a lot to go down to the airport when he had to pick somebody up. And then he admitted to me one time, he said, you know, the only reason I go down there is because I want to look at all the beautiful people. <laughs> and then he realized this was not skillful. He said, okay, let me, this time I want to go and I look for all the signs of aging. And he realized that they were just as much there as they were before, but he noticed them, you know. What are you looking for? Who's doing the looking? 
And then if you look in certain ways, you can look at anything and not give rise to defilement. If you look at other ways, you can look at anything and give rise to greed, aversion, and delusion. So you want to look at how you keep track of how you're looking at things and listening to things and with all the other senses. Now the Buddha says the best way to do that is to have a post. He makes a comparison with having six animals. You have a crocodile, and you have a bird, and you have a dog. You have a hyena, a snake, a monkey. And you put each of them on a leash, and then you tie all the leashes together. He says in this case, if there's no stake for them to be tied to, whichever animal is strongest is going to pull all the other animals in its direction. Which obviously would be the crocodile would pull everybody down to the river and they all drown. However, he says, if you have a post and you tie the leashes to that post, then no matter how much they pull, they're not going to go very far and they're finally going to all lie down next to the post. He says, in the same way, if you're trying to practice the restraint of the senses, but you don't have your mindfulness of your body firmly established, firmly established, you're going to get pulled in terms of what you like and what you don't like. But if you have a sense of well-being in the body that comes, say, working with the breath or being anchored in the body here in the present moment, then it has something to resist going out after those things. So that's how mindfulness then becomes a foundation for restraint of the senses. Any questions on those steps? Yes? Okay, well, if you're actually doing work, there's no problem, right? Right, you want to be a lot mindful. And if you see your mind going off in unskillful directions, you've got to bring it back in. But if you're just walking down the street, be very careful about you know, what you're looking at, why you're looking at it, how you're looking at it, what the results are. Because if you sit and meditate for an hour, and then you go out and just allow your mind to go all over the place, and you come back and you try to bring it back down again. And it's going to say, why bother? Because you're going to go out scattered again afterwards. Yeah, mindfulness is what you remember. Alertness is what you're paying attention to. And specifically being alert to your actions in the present moment. Although you can have, when, when your mindfulness is established in the body, you have the whole body as your framework. So it doesn't have to be too narrow. So you we activity that requires a lot of body function, mm -hmm. so I cannot perform as narrow. Because the action that you change is very quick. Yeah. So just maintain that like, mindfulness. Be aware of the whole body, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Six. Mm -hmm. You have to be restrained what you're thinking about. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Meditation covers all kinds of activities. Um, and then the question is what you are keeping in mind, that would be the mindfulness. So you're keeping the body in mind, or are you keeping the breath in mind, you're keeping goodwill in mind. That's the mindfulness part. 
And then the question is, once you've kept certain things in mind, then what are you doing with it? How do you develop concentration? How do you develop discernment? That's the whole of meditation. Is that clear? Right, right. Mindfulness is one part of meditation. It's what you're remembering. Yeah. Because meditation is developing the mind, developing good qualities in the mind and abandoning un unskillful qualities. And particularly you're trying to develop concentration and discernment. And mindfulness, they, they talk about mindfulness as kind of running the show to remind you, okay, this is, this is unskillful, stay away. This is skillful, let's go this way. Um, you're supposed to stay in the breath, come back to the breath. It's that kind of reminding voice in your mind. That's mindfulness. Okay. Question? So is talking more about remembering and more about is basically being alert to what you're doing. And you know, there are the three qualities. There's mindfulness, alertness, and ardency. And in John Lee's analysis, he puts the, the discernment part in the ardency. You're remembering, okay, this is skillful, I've got to develop it. This is unskillful, I've got to put it aside. And the, and the discernment there lies in seeing that the teachings are not there just for you to memorize, but they're actually to, for you to apply so you can develop good qualities in the mind. Right, 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 right. Mm -hmm. And specifically, the Buddha recommend pay attention to what you're doing, because that's that's what's going to make the difference. Right, yeah. And then, ardency is a quality that says, "Whoops! If you're beginning to slip, off, hey, come back." And this is how you come, you're making the actual effort to come back. That's actually equanimity. You're watching it. Mindfulness is what remembers. Okay, this is something eventually I want to get past. And the Buddha says there are two ways of dealing with difficult states like that. One is just not what you said. You watch it, and eventually it goes away, without you having to do much. It's almost as if, in some cases, it's almost as if it's embarrassed. You look at it, and it stops. But in other cases, you look at it, and it looks right back. It's going to stay there. And that's where the Buddha says, that's where you actually have to make an effort to do, to sort of take it apart and analyze it, to get past it. So what you just described would be equanimity. And it might be sound like just an issue of semantics, but as the Buddha said, there are times when equanimity is skillful and sometimes when it's not. 
Whereas, you know, if your mindfulness is right, then it's, it's always reminding you of what needs to be done. And some of that is you've learned from what you've heard, and some of it is what you've learned from experience as to what works and what doesn't work. It's basically just looking on and not reacting. It's it's cl as close you can get to bare attention, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the Buddha actually says you exert a fabrication, which obviously is a technical term. And when the Buddha talks about fabrication, there are three kinds. There's what he's called bodily fabrication, verbal, and mental. Bodily fabrication is the way you breathe. Verbal is the way you're talking to yourself. The technical terms there are directed thought and evaluation. In other words, you choose the topic that you're going to think about, and then you evaluate what's skillful and what's not skillful to be done here. And it's basically, that's how we talk to ourselves inside. We choose the topic and then we make comments on it. And then the third is um, mental fabrication, which is your, your feelings, pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain, and perceptions. And so what you've got to do is say, say anger comes up, and just watching it, it's not going to go away. Then you have to ask yourself, okay, when the anger comes up, one, how am I breathing? Can I change the way I breathe? Two, how am I talking to myself about this, this scenario? Can I change the way I'm talking about it? Choose different things to focus on, choose different comments to make about it. And then three, what are the perceptions and feelings I have around this? Physical feelings. In other words, what are the sort of little images I have in the back of my mind? Those are the perceptions. Can I change those? And this is why so much of the Pali Canon is devoted to analogies, where the Buddha is giving you other ways of perceiving a, a situation. Um, one of the ways he has is that you think about when you're angry at somebody and you're saying, this person really deserves you know, my anger. And, this, um, and how are you envisioning yourself at that point? And it might be, okay, you're the judge sitting up at the top of the, you know, this high seat, and that person is this little ant down at the bottom of the floor, and you can step on it at any time, no problem. He said, maybe this is not a good perception to hold in mind. And the Buddha gives you an alternative, which is that you're coming across a desert, you're hot, thirsty, trembling with thirst, tired. You come across some water in a cow's footprint, and you say, okay, even though it's in a cow's footprint, I need this water. But the problem is if you scoop it up, you're going to make it muddy. So what do you do? You lean down, get down on all fours, and you slurp it up. Now this would not be a dignified position. You wouldn't want anyone to come along with a cell phone at that point and take a picture of you. <laughs> but you say, I don't care, I need the water. And the Buddha says, in the same way, you think about that person's good qualities as that little puddle of water. And you have to very carefully focus on those good qualities. And part of you said, this is, this is beneath me. This person is awful. I shouldn't be focusing on his good qualities. But you realize, if I don't focus on his good qualities, I'm going to be focusing on the bad. I'm going to be aggravating my own anger. And I'm going to be suffering from the anger, doing unskillful things based on that. So even though it's not, I, don't, I feel it's beneath me, I shouldn't do it. So that's a different perception entirely. So if you breathe in a different way around the anger, and if you talk to yourself in a different way around the anger, and you hold different perceptions, and the way you breathe is going to create different feelings, that's how you refabricate. First you take it apart, 
and then you refabricate it. So that's the other way you get past unskillful states. Because mm -hmm. if you don't see the goodness in other people, it's like that cartoon in The New Yorker. The two lady poodles sitting at a bar. And you know they're ladies because they have lipstick and, and mascara. <laughs> and they both have this mean look on their face. Faces and one of them saying, "They're all sons of bitches." <laughs> I don't have to explain that. Okay. Any other questions? Well, that would be mental fabrication. You change the image you hold in mind about the issue. Do you think that by changing perception of this person, oh, he has good qualities, and or compared to the scenario, and maybe I have a memory within that, or he has done some good thing for me, and to my experience that, you know, the memory, the visual, has more profound Well, that's what the perception is. It's an image. Can it either be individual words or image? That's the basic perception. Then the fa verbal fabrication is full sentences. When you're actually thinking about something and saying, this person is this, this person is that. Yes? Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. Okay, that's basically, it's called becoming. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got a different world, and there's a new you inside that world. Sometimes you're watching, okay, then you're the spectator. In the, in the movie theater, then, is the world. You're actually not fully in the movie. Okay. Um, you, well, the first question is, say, why am I staying here? Do I want to stay here? And then you get out. And then you find yourself falling back again. But try to catch it more quickly each time you fall, that you fall into it. And you get closer and closer to where it begins. Where the, you know, where the possibility comes up, and you say, yes, I'll go for that. You want to catch that. <laughs> Well, that's, what you, that's the first thing. Look for the exit sign. And then finally you get to the point where you find yourself about to go into theater and say, I'm going to come out anyhow. Why am I going in? Okay. But just try to get quicker and quicker to catch yourself. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you want to, it's, it's the same sort of thing. You want to catch where does this begin and the closer you can get to it. Well, it, it actually, there's some things going on prior to the sense contact. But what you want to catch is, okay, sometimes you'll be going down and say, just contact, contact, whoops, and then you're gone. It's okay, what led me out there? What, what, what was the trigger? And you want to look for what the trigger was, so that gives you an idea, okay, this is the, this is the fabrication that was going on before, this is how I was talking, been talking to myself, or this is the image I'm holding in my mind. That's when you begin to see these things. Going back, yeah, yeah, going back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. Sense restraint. Well, there's there comes a point in the practice when you actually physically see the mind going out after something. If you're really with the body all the time, there's it's like there's this current that's going out, and as long as you stay with the body, you're not running with the current. Because it's when you run with the current that you, when you start getting into the movies or you start getting involved in whatever the storyline is around that incident. So if you can stay anchored with this sense, okay, I am here, and there goes my mind, but I'm not going with it. It's a, it's a visceral kind of sense. So then that, that establishes, okay, now you're saying this is how my mind goes out after things. Some people are just more sensitive to the bodies than others. And sometimes it has to do with emotional trauma, sometimes it has to do with physical trauma. Um, sometimes it has to do with watching computers too much. <laughs> These people want to upload themselves into the cloud, you know. The thing is that at some point you're going to have to get back anchored in your body. And so for people who don't like being in their body, say, well, find at least one spot in the body where you feel okay. Might be the tips of the fingers, might be the tips of the toes, something that is not directed, directly connected with anything emotional. And say, so, okay, take that as your, as your beachhead, yeah. Mm -hmm. But then also remind them, okay, you can manipulate the breath. Because the teaching that says you cannot manipulate the breath, that makes them even more unable to deal with things coming up. And then you also have to deal with, I had one student who um, came up to me and said, I'm going to have to stop doing this breath meditation. I said, well, why is that? She said, well, every time I sit down and focus on the breath, I get this strong sense of fullness. I said, well, that's what you're supposed to. And she says, but I don't like it. And so I asked her, have you ever been close to drowning? Twice. 
you've been close to drowning. So no wonder you don't like it. Because immediately, as soon as you feel that, you associate it with the fact that you almost drowned. So try to visualize it in some other way. Remind yourself that you're surrounded by air. There's no way you're going to drown. You're actually okay. Again, reframing the perception. This would be working with a metal fabrication. Mm -hmm. Yes? There's part of it is a story, and part of it is that you're saying, I'm, I'm meditating because I want to relax. And so if you want to really relax, we fall asleep. <laughs> and you have to remind yourself, no, before I, I, before I allow, allow myself to relax, I need to energize myself. And the Buddha talks about this several times, that you have to have a sense of fullness, you have to have a sense of you know, healthy energy in the body, then you can calm down, and you'll calm down okay. So get back from work and you say, okay, I need to breathe in an energizing way. And I found, what I found especially helpful is when you think of, this is where it's helpful to think of the breath as energy as opposed to the air. Okay, as the air goes out, but I'm not squeezing the energy out. You'll find some, some of us have this subconscious belief that but to get the air out, we're also squeezing the energy out, which depletes it unnecessarily. So try to keep the sense, okay, the energy in my body stays full even as I breathe out. And keep it full as it's coming in and keep it full as it's going out. And it, de it develops an energy. Okay, and then after the energies, you feel energized enough, that's when you allow it to settle down. Trying to make the breath more interesting, too, because your dreams and things are interesting. There's not much of a narrative in the breath. Today's breath went in and then went out, then it went in and then went out. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, from restraint of the senses, we go on to skillful bodily actions. Skillful, skillful conduct, excuse me, bodily, verbal, and mental. Okay, in this case, skillful bodily conduct is no killing, no stealing, no illicit sex. Skillful verbal action is no lying, no divisive speech, no harsh speech, no idle chatter. Skillful mental conduct is no inordinate greed. In other words, you see something and you would be willing to do anything to get that. I mean, it's okay to have desires for things as long as you say, I'm going to get this in an honest way. Unskillful greed is when it's, you know, I'll, by hook or by crook, I'm going to get this. Um, no ill will. 
It's interesting, the Buddha says, having ill will for somebody is an instance of wrong view. It's not only wrong resolve, it's also wrong view. The idea that you could be happy by seeing somebody suffer. So if you feel myself, hmm, I would really like to see so-and-so you know, squirm a little bit. It's okay, that's, that's wrong view. You've got to look into that. And then finally, skillful mental action is basically a um, mundane right view. I believe in karma, I believe in rebirth. The issues we discussed before the, <laughs> before the break. <laughs> any questions on any of those? We've been over them some, but it's, we can always rehash them. Okay, then, based, oh, excuse me, yes. Okay, there's nothing wrong with the desire for piano in and of itself. It's the question is, where can I steal the nearest piano? That would be unskillful greed. <laughs> now, those inordinate greed is when you're willing to do anything to get what you want. And there's a, this is an issue that came up in, in Thailand years back. Some Americans were sent over. They got they got funding from the government to analyze Thai Buddhism, to see what what aspects of Thai Buddhism were helpful in the fight against communism and which aspects were were not helpful. <laughs> and one of the things they come up with is there's a real problem with the Buddha. The Buddhism teaches contentment. Now this is bad for any capitalist system. <laughs> and so. The government advised, you know, actually talked to the elders' council and said, could you send out a message to all the monks, stop teaching contentment. <laughs> Everybody laughed at it. This is, this is what's so great about Thailand. The elders' council sends out things and you're free to laugh and not laugh, as long as you do it politely, quietly. But basically there was no, there was no pressure to, to, to obey. But it shows a real misunderstanding and it, it did get the monks to thinking about, okay, it's not that the desire for things is in and of itself bad. The Buddha talks about having initiative in, in conducting your livelihood if, to get wealth by honest means, and then use the, your honestly gotten gains to gain things that will be useful for you, and then you maintain them. All of this is all for the good. So your desire for a piano is no problem. Just don't go into your neighbor's house and try to steal the piano. Okay, well, it's interesting, the Buddha says, when you have wealth, part of the wealth should be used to find pleasure. Because if you can't use your wealth to find pleasure, you're not going to look at anybody else's pleasure in, in a good light. And that's going to make it hard for you to be generous, make it hard for you to have develop goodwill. So allow yourself honest pleasures. Then don't buy a piano. <laughs> okay, you put them together by saying, where am I in my practice? Which one do I want to be? Do I feel like I haven't had enough wealth yet? Or do I feel like I have enough wealth and I want to go beyond that? And for the people who feel they have, don't have enough wealth yet, let them be. You work on where you want to go. Because some people say, what the hell, I've been working all this hard and I can't even enjoy it a little bit. Okay, let them enjoy it. And then when they say, okay, I've had enough, 
as long as it's honestly gotten wealth and it's honestly honest pleasure, you're not harming anybody. Okay. Then you enjoy that and they say, okay, I've had enough of this, now it's time to go on. The best pleasures are the, you know, the pleasures of solitude, the pleasures of living harmoniously. The Buddha said, you look at your mind, and if your mind enjoys certain pleasures and you find that it, nothing unskillful seems to be coming up, that pleasure is okay. If you see that unskillful things are coming up, you've got to avoid that pleasure. And this is going to be different from person to person to person, which is why we don't go around judging other people's enjoyments. Yeah, well, this is what the basad is for. Okay, there's a way out, and it's, this is the path. We have the path out. Now, some people don't have sangwega around certain things yet. And so they say, okay, well, as long as it's an innocent pleasure, you pursue it, and then you begin to see, okay, here are the limitations. Maybe I, maybe I should put it aside now and move on. So that's, 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 that's where you need mindfulness as a goad. Either that or your teacher to come and say, nope, this, you know, it's time you moved on. And this is really going to vary from person to person. You read the stories of the different Ajahns, um, studying with Ajahn Mun. In some cases, Ajahn Mun would they'd get into concentration and he'd say, okay, now move on. You can't stay stuck in the concentration. There was a case with one of the Ajahns, he, he basically said he was stuck on concentration for eight years and Ajahn Mun didn't say a word. Ajahn Mun probably saw, okay, this person really needs to master concentration and then move on. So different people are going to be moving at different rates. Okay, based on having developed skillfully bodily conduct, then you establish mindfulness. We could do a whole week. We could do a whole week on our mindfulness. We don't want to have ten minutes. Okay. Basically, mindfulness. The establishing of mindfulness is the Buddha's description of how you get the mind into concentration. And the basic formula is that you keep track of, say, the body in and of itself. Ardent, alert, mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. So you've got two activities there. One, keeping track of something in and of itself, and then two, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. That's basically concentration. You're staying in one frame of reference, and any thoughts that have to do with the world, you put them aside. Now we've already talked about ardency, alertness, and mindfulness. Those are the qualities you bring to those two activities. So in case you're staying with the breath, then it would mean keeping track of the breath all the time, not forgetting the breath. When unskillful things come up in the mind, you put them aside so that you can keep your focus on the breath. The in and of itself there is, in other words, you're looking at the body not in, in terms of how it, it, you would evaluate it in terms of the world, but simply just the fact you've got a body. So the body in the world would be is my body attractive to other people? Is my body strong enough to do the work I want to do? Those kinds of questions you put aside. And simply, okay, I've got this body here and I'm going to fo stay focused on it on its own terms. And anything that would come up that would pull you away from that focus, you drop it. 
That's how mindfulness is established. And then in doing that, the Buddha says, okay, you let go of unskillful things and you are developing the factors for awakening, mindfulness being the first of them. From there it goes on to what's called analysis of qualities, where you look at what's coming up in the mind, you see, is this skillful, is this unskillful? If you see that it's unskillful, then you make an effort to get rid of it. If you see that it's skillful, you make an effort to maintain it. Okay, that effort is the right effort is the third of the factors for awakening. The fourth is rapture. If you do it well, there will be a sense of fullness, there will be a sense of refreshment. The word rapture here is, may not be the best translation. The Pali term is bitti, which is related to drinking. Basically, you're sort of drinking in the energy. And some people, depending on lots of different factors, you have experienced it in different ways. In some cases, it's just a sense of fullness in the body. In some cases, it's a sense of a chill going up and down your spine or going up and down your arms. In some cases, it feels like waves coming over the body. Sometimes it's like a tingling feeling through the body. In other, in other cases, it's simply just a lot of energy filling the body. Okay, that's you know, okay, I'm doing it right. However, the rapture can be, get to the point where it's unpleasant, and that's when you say, let's go for calm, let's calm it down, which is the next factor for awakening. And then when it gets calmed down, okay, then you can get the mind into concentration. Yes? Bitti, bitti is in Thai, in Pali, yeah. And then when the mind is in concentration, then you can develop equanimity, where the mind is simply really just watching things as they are in the present moment. And when everything is really balanced, there's not much you have to do. Just kind of watching over what you've got. Make sure that it stays. So this is how mindfulness leads eventually to concentration. And these factors for awakening, these are, these are not factors of awakening. In other words, this is not a description of awakening. This is a description of the steps that lead there. Any questions on that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Depends on what they've been taught or what they're doing. Okay, the problem with that is that you're often told that whatever comes up, you just watch it come and watch it go when you don't do anything. And sometimes some really severe stuff can come up. And unless you have some techniques for pulling out of it, it's going to get overwhelming. Partly it's personal trauma, and partially the instructions say, don't do anything. And that kind of deprives you of the, 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 your, the sense that you are allowed to do something about it. Because notice when the Buddha would say, you're, you, don't, you don't really do insight practice like that until you've got a basis in concentration. Because that gives you a sense of well-being. You say, whoops, I'm, something's wrong here, I've got to pull back and take you know, rest and concentration for a while before I take this on again. Okay, if the hindrances are coming up, it's th that particular passage is in what they call gerunds in Pali, which can either mean having done or doing. So it's unclear as to which, do you have to get past that or do you have to be continually doing it? 
And in practice what it means is you'll be continually doing it until you go past it. No, the, the four, one thing I didn't mention with the four uh, establishments of mindfulness, there are four frames of reference, basically. Body, feelings, mind, and dhamma, as they call it. Now, the first three are actually the component factors of concentration. You've got the body, say the breath. You're trying to get the breath to fill the body, so it fills the body with a feeling of pleasure. And then your awareness fills the body. So you've got three things, breath, feeling, pleasure, feeling, and awareness, filling the body. That's the ideal state of concentration. And then the dhammas there are basically a list of factors that if something is going wrong, you kind of look at the list and say, okay, which things are lacking or which things do I have in excess? So you can figure out how do I adjust things so I can keep the body and, and this feeling of pleasure and the breath all together and the, and the mind all together. Okay, that's, that becomes a question, okay, which skillful thought will help me get past these, these thoughts, the unskillful ones that are fighting. And they, and they basically have to ask, okay, why do I need to listen to you? And they'll say, because, dot, 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 you know. You say, no, I want a, I want a clear explanation. Come on, let's hear it. Why do I, why should I? And they'll say, because it's obvious. I say, no, it's not obvious. I want to know. One of the, when they teach you journalism, one of the first things they ask, they tell you is if you want to get really good comments out of an interviewer, you have to act a little stupid. So they feel called upon to explain themselves. And sometimes you can get a politician to just say something really incriminating when he tries to explain himself. <laughs> so in the same way, okay, your unskillful thoughts, you say, explain yourselves. Why should I go for something that's obviously unskillful? And they say, because I want to. Well, who, who, who's the I in here? And why do you want this for? You try to get in a little bit of a dialogue. And now if you find the dialogue is going nowhere, it's okay, I'm just not going to listen to you. If they're going to be stubborn, you can be stubborn too. And that's when you use the technique, okay, they can be over there in that corner of the mind chattering away, but I'm not going to pay any attention. So if they're tricky, you have to be tricky. Yeah, if it goes away, you don't have to do anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, remember those five techniques for dealing with unskillful thinking. The first one is just replace it. And then if that's enough, then you don't have to bother with it much. It's when it keeps coming back. And then even if you reason with it, it keeps coming back, coming back. That's when you say, okay, you can go ahead and keep coming back. I'm just not going to pay any attention to you. you know? I don't know. It just feels full. <laughs> It's like every little cell in your body is perfectly satisfied. It's not like a stomach fullness. It's just that, okay, there's, there's kind of a fullness. Does it feel good? Okay, it feels good. Keep it up. <laughs> yeah. It's more like, it really depends on how much you've been lacking it, how intense it's going to be. You know, it's like coming across the desert and not having anything to drink for days and days and days, and you finally get a glass of water. Now, as soon as that water hits your lips, your whole body's going to go, wow. But if you've been drinking water every day, you take a drink of water, there's no, there's no big deal. 
So it's when you're coming along, you've been really lacking in energy, and you finally get the mind to settle down, and it just really goes for it, and there'll be an intense feeling of, boy, this feels really good. That would be the rapture. Well, you can't actually watch their feelings, but you can keep in mind, other people are having feelings just like this. And particularly with other people have particular mind states, so when other people act on anger, this is what it looks like. Hmm, maybe when I act on anger, maybe that's how that looks too. You reflect back off. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And you reflect on. Oh, one of the things the Buddha has you keep in mind when you are suffering from illness is that you're not the only one. This is also you know, keeping in mind externally as well as internally. That takes some of the burden off as saying, why am I sick when everybody else is well? Well, not everybody else is well. And any way that you can sort of reflect on things outside and reflect on them inside, or you, know, you have certain feelings, you say, well, those other people probably have feelings like this too. That's, that's the external and internal. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we'll meet tomorrow at 9. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.